Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast. I am your host, Nikesh Shukla. This is Season 1, Episode 6 of the podcast. Six episodes in, how am I doing? I think it's going well. I hope you're okay wherever you are. Uh, just to catch those of you up who are joining us for the first time, Brown Baby is a weekly parenting podcast asking how we raise our kids with joy and wonder in uncertain and, let's face it, increasingly bleak times. Uh, this is the question I explore every week, and it's also the question that forms the central thematic argument of my new memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home. And I decided to widen the conversation. So each week I talk to writers, musicians, chefs, comedians, actors, interesting people about their parenting journeys and the highs and lows they've experienced along the way. This is, I hope, a frank, funny and poignant look at parenting and it will spark honest and self-effacing conversations about how we tell our kids about the world. It will be a comforting, uplifting podcast for anyone who's found themselves searching for answers in a sleep-deprived Google hole. I have been there and let me tell you, Google is useless. Google will not parent your child. Today's guest is Max Porter, the writer of Grief is the Thing with Feathers and Lanny and the newly released The Death of Francis Bacon, a beautiful and experimental meditation on art and legacy in life. He is a wonderful writer. Also, he's a good pal. So this is like a chat between two friends. Uh, Max is someone I've spent a huge amount of time talking to recently and swapping music with over the last few years. And he's just one of the most genuine and soulful people I've ever met. I look forward to you hearing our chat where we talk about our kids, social media, mental health, the responsibilities of being a dad. Max talks about raising boys. And also we talk about what you do when your kids treat you like a dickhead. But first, speaking of my kids treating me like a dickhead, this morning... My daughter climbed. No, no. This morning, my daughter climbed into bed and flopped on top of me as I woke up. As I stared, she rubbed my hair and said quietly, "Don't be sad today, Daddy. When you're tired, when you're tired, you're sad. I don't like that." I mean, talk about making me feel like a dickhead first thing in the morning. God, I, I jest. I jest. It, it was a very lovely way of waking up, but it did make me think, God. She just thinks I am sad all the time. Hey, look, I've got a new book out. It's called Brown Baby. Max has a new book out called The Death of Francis Bacon. In the show notes, I've put a link to a bookshop.org affiliate shop where you can buy our books and those of our guests so far. And each sale helps the show. Also, I just want to hit those bestseller charts. It's my dream. Please help me. OK, now time for Max Porter. Welcome to the podcast Max Porter, how are you doing, my friend? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. I I feel like the the pause, <laughs> the pause before. No, I'm great. I'm I've got one of those Monday mornings where I'm thinking, come on then, come on then this week. What have you got? What lo- what practical emotional challenges have you got lined up for me? I'm ready. I was having an incredible... I rarely dream in the morning because I wake up quite early and then can't get back to sleep, but I lie awake worrying about things and I don't want to wake my wife up. And this morning, I, and my kids sleep through the alarm. We have to go and wake them up. And this morning, I was having an incredibly intense dream. And it's very boring to tell people dreams, but I will just quickly say it was a... I was in a knife fight scenario 
in a kitchen where I didn't have my knife and I knew I would have to take the knife off one of my assailants in, in order to get in order to get out of the situation alive at exactly the point the alarm went off so I was kind of pissed off this morning that I didn't get to that I didn't get to you know throw some moves get out of that situation in an exciting way you know when a dream's interrupted sometimes it, it, it lingers a bit into your daytime I find my dreams are always interrupted just before their resolution which I sort of feel as some sort of metaphor for life well there's probably a neuroscientific explanation I just don't want answers. That's what it is. I just I can't believe you know the thing about your dream. Your dreams only last point eight of a second or something like that. You know they're just a little flicker in your in your brain activity. And sometimes I just, as a novelist, I just refuse to believe that the complexity of the plotting in some of my dreams. I'm like that. That was half an hour at least. Because <laughs> then you know you wake up and you go back into it. Sometimes when a dream just grabs you back in, you're like, no, I'm not done with you yet. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. Good. Um... We're, yes, we're here to talk about parenting. What a what a strange situation to be in. Um, you're a dad of three, Max. You know that thing that people that interview technique that people have, where they just sort of re- repeat facts that people know about people at them, and fra- and then sort of go, is that isn't that true? Uh, to to make it seem like a question. Um, but you're a dad of three. <laughs> I'm a father of three. Did you you always think you were going to be a dad? The only thing I saw in my stars, I had no um, ambition in the kind of capitalist sense. I didn't know what I was going to be. I didn't think I was going to be a writer or anything like that. But I knew from very early on that I wanted to be a dad. Partly because I... uh, Well, I I suppose I would would locate that age six losing my own dad, which I'm sure will come up again because as... As we know, the two things are connected. Um, but I, uh, I was also very broody. I love, I love babies. Uh, I, I really, I mean, particularly other people's babies. I'm an absolute, uh, you know, rush across a room to grab a hug with the baby. I've always really liked being around babies, and I'm quite childish. I've never had therapy, but I suspect my therapy would be around the fact that I am still so childish. It certainly comes up in my relationship with with my wife and others. Um, so the state of play of being around children and mucking around uh, has been my kind of happy place forever. Really, um, I'm oddly. I think I grew. I think I grew up quite quickly as a child. I was in, I was probably quite emotionally mature in terms of the things I was interested in, the conversations I was having. You know, I was one of those kids that would sit, like, age six on my grandpa's knee, like, talking about <laughs> death and dying and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but I, I am also quite... I have quite an infantile... Um, I don't know what the vocabulary would be. Like, I have maybe I have a kind of infantile superego. Like, my natural state is to, like, is to play. And I'm very impatient, and, I, and um, I can't handle the adult world. It makes me cross and sticky, and I just want to lie down and hide and, like you know, make things out of, you know, junk modelling. <laughs> so, yeah, I did always want to have children, yeah. And luckily I met someone that also felt that way. In a, just a sort of, uh, we were, we, you know, I married my childhood sweetheart, so we knew that we were going to make babies, yeah. There's a, yeah, there's that thing about um, about play that I find really interesting because uh, when, when I was growing up, I was responsible for looking after all of my younger siblings like my my sister and my my cousins and so play was very much how how we got through the days and Mm. what what i find increasingly as i get older and older that that is probably the only thing that kind of keeps me getting through the day when you know like Mm. when the drudgery of parenting and and having to deal with the day-to-day of it kind of kicks in the ability the ability to to launch ourselves into imagined universes is always the thing that kind of keeps me going yeah well i mean i think if we if we have to stare down the difficult <clears throat> truths in this conversation with each other i think i have to admit that the greatest shame i currently feel is that my third child has experienced less of that as as i've become busier and taken on more projects and possibly as the world has <clears throat> excuse me as the world has changed and i've become more engrossed in the news cycle or whatever it is for, for whatever reason actually i just don't play with my third child like i played with my other two i used to do hours of imaginative play and setups and camp building and you know 
world building stuff with my eldest, you know, or just lining up cars in a row and then smashing them and then lining them up in a row. And my third just doesn't get that. From my, my wife actually said to me recently, when was the last time you sat and played with him? You know, neither of you holding a screen, you just did some play. I, I had to admit it was quite a long time ago. Does, does, it, does he have that with his brothers? Yeah, and he has it with himself. And you know, I don't think he's deprived of it particularly. He has a nice uh, relate. He he himself has a nice sort of nice strategies of play uh, are alive in him. And you know, I, I, But it's just the the realization of how I have changed. And you know, but I I think also I, I I'm aware of how easy it is to beat oneself up as a parent and how and how the kind of I'm married to a Catholic so. Well, a lapsed Catholic with a, an actively Catholic mother, but the the kind of uh, ecosystem of guilt needs to be resisted sometimes, doesn't it? Like, but also this is the, this is my big admission to you as regards parenting and, and life. I know we can't separate the two. This is my big admission, full stop. I'm incredibly defensive. So my first response when my wife said, "You hardly ever play with child number three. I was like, "Yes, I do. <laughs> I played with him yesterday." And I was like, go, 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 show mum what we did yesterday. <laughs> like, why am I being defensive? She's right. It's true. She's just stating a fact. She's not, she's not crossing me about it. She's just observing that, that life is different to how it was 10 years ago. We only had one kid and I, and I worked in a bookshop and I had Fridays off and they were daddy days and all I did was play. I mean, it's good for us that, that life has moved on. I don't want to be the same person I was when I was 29. As, as someone who's also very defensive, I can, I can definitely see that that is... That is part of being still quite childish in in a way, but you know, yeah, you know, like to constantly feel under attack, to constantly feel like you're having to perform and sing for your supper and prove everything. You know, an interesting thing. You know, when I was a youth worker, the the thing that I found really really fascinating about the project that I worked on was the difference between the kids who came out came into the youth project having come straight from school and the kids who came having done a degree because the kids who came straight out mm. of school because every second of their day is accounted for um mm. m they they just had to constantly prove to me that they were working that they were doing this they were constantly justifying themselves constantly like yeah. calling up like coming up with elaborate excuses to explain being 10 minutes late even though i sort of didn't care if yeah. they were 10 minutes late whereas the 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 kids who'd come out come out of like a university degree i say kids like 21 year olds uh they yeah. were you know they were much more been left to their own devices much more and so kind of by the time you kind of get to the end of that degree hopefully you're kind of living and dying living living or you're succeed, succeeding or failing dependent on how much you've put in and you're you're starting to see that yeah. and I, f I found that really yeah. fascinating because i think that's me like even though I, you know even though i went to university and stuff like that having to account for every second of your time thing i think that was just my childhood do you think do you think that in your mind there's a kind of imaginary judge who is asking you to account for your decisions as well as your time like and that is a sort of psychological propulsion for you like to, to be able to account for yourself like i always liken it to a jury that there is a jury that is going to one day sit me down and say this was where you were wasteful this was where you were greedy this was where you were idle this was where you know these were your environmental sins these were your sexual <laughs> sins etc etc and the truth is there is no such jury but the idea that there might be as a as a kind of psychological constraint is probably quite useful if you're trying to be a good person in this world like particularly in a secular society like no longer feeling we're answerable to a god or that that we're being looked at by a higher power might mean we need to invent our own imaginary moralizing dad figure who's like stop being such a wanker <laughs> yeah I, for, for me i think it was because i was the i was the return on invest i was the return on investment kid in our family because i was the eldest i my parents mm. sent me to private school for a few years and it kind of bankrupted them to, to do it and i still don't really understand yeah. why they just didn't choose the easier life but it just meant that I, I more than my sister or my cousins had to justify absolutely everything. There was no fun. There yeah. was no slacking. There was no not studying because I had to kind of justify the huge expense that I'm putting in. And I think that that voice has yeah. just stayed with me well into my adult years. Well, you write about that very beautifully in your book. But w w how would you say that that family dynamic, uh, as it were, the kind of good son, the as you say, the sort of investment son, uh, how would you say that coupled or joined forces with the question of well, 
the question of the good immigrant in terms of labour and like in terms of membership of a like of a societal project that you have to put into and you have to achieve and you have to represent things and then because also you're talking about in the book about your relationship with your sisters and and actually carrying a certain degree of guilt or responsibility around with you how do you think that coupled with the broader question of what you do yeah it's funny that i think that my dad really bought into thatcher era conservatism and he really bought into the pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard thing probably quite a horrific thing for me to admit being you know a, you know a socialist what you know whatever label i'm gonna put on it you know that that my ideals are built on my dad's belief in thatcherism that's really fucked up yeah. i do think a lot about how our visions of who we become as parents are shaped by our own parents and i often think about how my dad's emotional absence but physical presence kind of means that i really want to be emotionally invested in in as much in my kids as much as possible even though i have a job that takes me away a lot i'm kind of interested if if this sort of desire that you or this this need that you have to be present and be playful kind of comes from the fact that you kind of your your dad wasn't there and you and your brother sort of spent a lot time, a lot of time in imagined worlds, but kind of would have really benefited from him kind of getting on the floor with you, as it were, and smashing cars up. Yeah, I mean, I think we spend as parents, we spend a lot of time second guessing what made us okay, like what made me all right, and and you know, so for example, like something, if you're saying your dad was emotionally absent but physically present, something obviously worked there because you're a good person, you have a good relationship with your dad. I often think like bereavement was possibly the, the 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 sort of defining factor in in the formation of my personhood and maybe the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of well simply in terms of not being an asshole not taking things for granted but also the kind of enlightening the, the enlightening philosophical mindset that I, that is grief it does incredible things for you as you as you write so beautifully about your mum in your book like it it refines the way you think about yourself and others it gives you a clarity of purpose in terms of daily behaviors but also like the big the big questions of how how to handle consciousness and pain and everything um i i i have to just say again and again and again to myself and my children how lucky we are and how lucky i was and and to, to the extent of a kind of broken record you know i had a really nice stepdad uh, my mum was really strong like uh, you know, there was, you know, I had my brother and me like really, really close. My steps things were really, really nice. Like my my beautiful Welsh grandmother gave me kind of uh, like like bitter, hard won Quaker wisdom. Like, and she also left me a bit of money to, to put a deposit on a flat. You know, like I've been so lucky. And so I, I, I think I come very, very strong with my children about this, this uh, not, not taking anything for granted, being thankful for the, for the environment we're in, the roof over our head and the food we're eating type thing, in a way that, that actually I, I never, my parents just got on with things, you know? I, I, think, I, I think I over, I sort of over promote the, the sort of uh, the gratitude stuff in my kids in an attempt not to be, un like for example, on behavior, I'm always saying to my son, don't be the kid at school that is wasting the teacher's time because you're the one who understands because I've talked to you so much about it, like how hard your teacher is working and how she's got, you know, 28 children in the class she's got to look after. And you're the lucky one that's got this beautiful brain and you're, you're able to do this with this shit with your eyes closed. So please don't be the one that wastes her time and dicks around. And he, he said to me the other day, but what if I want to just be a bit of a prat? Like I don't have to be perfect all the time. Like what if I want to just joke around? Like, when be a bit chippy and be a bit funny. I'm allowed to be that. Like, I don't have to be this perfect, grateful emblem of, like, right-on liberal gratitude that you want me to be. I'm like, damn, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, flashback to me being a complete twat for years and years. Like, before you have the kind of... Before you have the epiphanies that gradually... Like, you kind of roll roll into being who you are, don't you? And we make these mistakes or these have these sort of revelations every day of our life. Um, I don't know what your question was, but, um, like, totally, totally aware I'm getting getting some things very wrong, but trying to foreground um, the gratitude and aware that, the, yeah, the absence of my dad and the closest me and my brother had in relation to everyone else was certainly major factors. And actually, it's interesting you mentioned my brother... My brother was very unhappy as a teenager and, uh, I mean, was, was depressed and, and made some bad lifestyle choices for a while and is now one of the most sorted, rounded, sort of emotionally stable people I know, but bleak. 
you know, he's de- like he's depressed in a way that one might, you know, like the most unhappy people are the wisest people. Like he's not, he doesn't find the world, he doesn't love the way the world works. He finds it upsetting. He finds it, it, it very hard to reconcile himself with the history of whatever whatever one picks from the bloodthirsty and carnage of human history on this planet. Um, and yet he's very, very, very loving and gentle and kind and wise and nice uh, and fun. I think he's quite fun. Um, but to see him go from that place of possible no return when he was a teenager to where he is now, it, there's luck involved. But actually what there is is just a lot of quite hard work. The hard work of the sibling relationship, the hard work of the people that fell in love with him and carried him through, the hard work of, of like, well, you know, of of medical help and therapeutic help and, and these things strike me as miraculous and I and I and I sort of look at my children at the age there are now and think god I just want to shepherd you safely to being where my brother is now okay in his own skin loved and loving you know and that seems some days too much to handle doesn't it this the weight of that the sort of odyssey like potential for what could go wrong between now and then for any life, anywhere, anywhere in the world. How any of us don't just go completely mad with that on our shoulders any time, I don't know. Well, one of the things that I, I sort of noticed about you during the sort of the first pandemic lockdown and sort of, you know, getting to know you a bit better over, over that period was you were really good at taking the, the horror and the negativity and the pain of the outside world and trying as hard as you could to build a cocoon around you and your family to just get you guys through that period you know whereas like i think i spent a lot of time mourning the fact that i just couldn't be in the world as i wanted to whereas i think you really relished the relish the challenge of sort of hunkering down and just surviving as a you you're a lot more sociable than me nikesh you uh, you really have lots of friendships and you're you like being out in the world i'm a bit of a hermit you know i i i I would uh, I would happily stay in my, I'm a real, you know, I, I love being in the home, making things, rearranging things, painting things. We painted every room of our house. We like nesting. I'm a real nester. So it suited me. And also the way the world now works, all the things that make me feel good, some of which I have to say are, 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 are collaborative projects with other people and charity work and mentorships. I know we've both spoken about how important mentorships, the mentoring work we do has been to our mental health to, to our sense of ourselves getting through this thing um, but actually that that was just it happened to be really good timing for me to be able to do those things on the internet and then just turn literally three meters away is my son playing FIFA uh, and I can have a conversation with him about that uh, and then go and cook for him like it actually simplified life to a really nice degree for me so the missing of people you you struggle yeah. with that more because you you're much nicer than me <laughs> In the flesh, in in the real world, <laughs> much more much more needy than. But you, you draw strength from a, from a community of friends and collaborators in a way that I do, I'm 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 a bit more bit more sort of um, misanthropic, locked into my locked into myself, perhaps. Maybe it's just maybe I'm just sort of confessing to being a bit antisocial. <laughs> or maybe you've just allowed yourself yeah. to lean into it, since it, that's that's what happens when people leave London. They're like. Finally, I don't have to pretend yeah. to like going to the pub with lots of yeah, people. I true. sort of and also no having no colleagues. I mean, I was I was a good colleague, I think, and I think I, if you think about like the number of social relationships you can have at any one time, high functioning ones where you're giving a lot and receiving a lot, and that they're sort of modulating through the sort of landscape of whatever you're doing. You know, crisis at work, people getting fired, economic problems, etc. Like my world shrank which meant I gave a lot more to my work, to, to the writing I was doing, and a lot more to projects, collaborative projects, but also probably to my children. And I think my wife has often jokes that she's got four children. And I don't think she means, I mean, maybe she, like, I do the cooking, she does the washing type thing, so maybe she means having another body in the house. But I know really what she means is another needy person needing, gui- you know, asking for guidance, going to her as a sort of pillar of strength. Are you like that? <laughs> no, I am, I am incredibly needy. Does, is that a kind of accepted and final aspect of your personality in the in the, in the kind of in, in the architecture of your marriage? Is that is that established and un and sort of unmovable your neediness, or is it a thing that you both try and address? A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I, th- I think at this point it is it is very established. I, the thing that I seem to have struggled with ever since I was small was just an oversensitivity when it came to how people spoke to me. Mostly because you know my mum my mum was hard. She was really hard. You know, and her hardness wasn't didn't push me away. It, it brought me in, but her hardness did kind of keep me keep me energized and keep me going. I worry that I still need that hardness, and so. But with it comes a degree of insensitivity, uh, or no feeling like people are being insensitive, hypersensitivity, not insensitivity. Yeah, but say you say you decided to stop having your feelings hurt. So one major way you could do that, as as you know, and we've discussed, and you discuss often, is to re- take yourself off a social media platform where much of the time people are insulting and abusing you because of the work you do on there. But what would be the loss? The loss of engagement and the loss of achievement and the loss of of sort of energy that you would feel would that be worse do you are you addicted to the to the sort of to the minor skin wounds that occur i definitely am addicted to social media that is a realization i've had in the last few months i thought when was it the end of july i decided that i was going to be much more mindful about how i tweeted about issues and always go after systems not people and always you know use use the power that i have to talk about big things rather than oh this this advert was a bit problematic and i made a comment about a tv program and how it kind of perpetuated opportunities for marginalized or lack of opportunity for marginalized writers but the way it was reported in the press kind of stripped the contextual integrity away from what i was saying and i got i got loads of shit from it from like from so many corners and i thought well this is this is it i've had enough i can't be bothered but i was back within i was back within a week within two weeks no, and I want. I've got a question to no, ask you. This is my podcast. Sorry to turn the tables. <laughs> this is my podcast. Yeah, I know, but you know, you invite you, <laughs> you invite a wannabe um, a wannabe Wogan onto your podcast. You got to expect the tables you, to you turn. You invite someone who wants their own podcast onto your podcast. They're going to turn it into their podcast <laughs> as an advert for them. Okay, let's have some music. <laughs> <laughs> this is MJ Cole with Sincere. It's nine forty-five in the morning. This is Nikesh's podcast. Uh, um, <laughs> I want to hang on, hang on. I want to ask you a quick question. Do you? allow yourself do you do you tell your children if they've hurt your feelings yeah i do you do and and have you done that ever since they've been able to understand and comprehend that as a you haven't ever spared them that is what i mean you, you're honest with them about that yeah because i the way i remember my parents was they were infallible and knowing myself i am incredibly i am cre- incredibly fallible and i make mistakes all the time and i have to constantly remind myself that my my children do not understand sarcasm and they do not understand cussing each other which was just how me and my my siblings grew up you know that was how we showed love was to cuss each other they they're not there yet or they you know that's just not their personality and and, and i make mistakes <laughs> Poor all the time children just getting I know, smaller in your house all day 
<laughs> there'll, be like, there'll be like 15 like that. So I've told you before, I don't, I don't, like, you, I don't like you calling me that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Dad, I know you think sarcasm is the highest form of wit, but uh, I've read this quote and it turns out it's not. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've just done three degrees and uh, nine years of therapy. And by the way, you really should stop calling me that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah go on. So I interrupted you. So it's different but there, there is this but what, but what is i mean this... is if, if they if they say something to you which i mean defensiveness is again in play here but say like i'll give you an example from my life my son was rude to me the other morning my youngest just grumpy classic boy being grumpy and then when he got home from school he was really rude to me about his snack and then when i picked him up from taekwondo he went oh it's you and then I got him home and he gave me a hard time about his snack. And then he didn't like his dinner. And then when I went up to read him his fucking god-awful book about the zoo where the girl can hear the animals speaking. No offence to that author. They're lovely books, but I'm just having a difficult time with them in a minute. He was like, oh, I don't want the story. To know. So, and I said to him, you have been rude to me at every single encounter we've had with one another today. You've been rude to me eight times and you've been nice to me zero times. How do you think that makes me feel? And then he was really upset. <laughs> I was like, well done, man. <laughs> You've just really, like, he's obviously in a bad mood. Leave him alone. Like, what is my desire to, to score these strange little moral victories over my children about the way they behave to me? Like, who's winning in that situation? All I'm doing is chipping away at their self-esteem. And why that, that hasn't made me feel better? It's not a game. It's not like, you know, it's not, a, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like I can go and chalk up that as a victory for me as a human being or a parent. All I've done is make a five-year-old feel crap about themselves. I don't know if it's about that, though. Isn't it more about helping people to understand the impact that their actions have on other people? Because, you know, I think so much of the conversations I have with my kid are about, well, both my kids are about our impacts on, you know, the impact of our actions on other people. But I don't need to use my own emotions. My own, that's what I'm saying about our relationship with our parents. I think if my mum or my stepdad had done that with me, they wouldn't have needed themselves in the mix. They wouldn't have needed to say, you hurt my feelings. That's just like a cheap emotional play. I, they would have done it using the world. There's plenty of examples to draw upon, aren't there? That's what I, a little bit what I mean about the secular society as well. Like, I'm sure if I'd gone to Sunday school, there'd be a nice little Old Testament example someone could have used to make me realise why I was being a bit... Do you know what I mean? It's the using my own hurtness to make the kid feel guilty that I think is, 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 my, is my failing. I mean, it, it depends how thick you laid it on. You know, if, if, you, if you cried and you're like, you really destroyed yeah. my sense. I woke up today with the world in front of me yeah. and you just made me feel this way. I, I mean, that might be laying it on a bit too thick. But, it, I, I, but I think it's totally okay to go, you've not been very nice to me today and uh, let's talk about how that yeah. might have made me feel. Now let's talk about when I'm not nice to you and how that makes you feel. Do you, you, know, do you think that one of the things that we should look out for is just being honest with yeah. how we feel and how that that is then externalized and then how that affects other people yeah, yeah but you start to understand when you have small children i think so many of the times that you were told off as a child weren't necessarily about you it was about other factors that you might not have known about like you know when i've been pissed off about something at work or you know when i've accidentally flooded the kitchen or i'm just tired then i might have snapped at my kid or just told her that she was grating on me for for no reason other than like i was in a bad mood and then i had that and apologize and and sort of strip away the idea that i'm infallible because i know i'm not but at the same time when she says i'm the best dad i will take yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not true because you know there are some things well yeah because you know she tells you you're the best rapper you know she's lying but maybe there's some (laughs) truth in in the dad comment i mean i think yeah this is it for me like because also as our children go grow slightly older and start to realize the ways in which we're fallible and have a vocabulary to gently mock us for it you realize you've absolutely smashed it Like, like yes i mock myself you're welcome to join in on that as a loving project because i've given you x number of years of of the ways in which i i I, i'm thin-skinned or or i let's i think what you said about the you know having something that work that affects your parenting or the mood of the house that's why lockdown has been as an experiment extremely fascinating to me because i've got three young men three young three young one day men if you see what i mean like the the root <clears throat> these little acorns that will one day become tree and when they're boys that's three potential abusers or three potential dickheads or three potential mps that fiddle their expenses or three potential thugs you know or three potential buttons of whatever you know presses of whatever button you know patriarchy allows men to press and and what you know so risk involved particularly as a feminist but like the ways one thinks about raising boys uh, and I, you know I, I speak to you about 
<coughs> raising girls and my brother about raising girls and the differences are sometimes uh, very stark and sometimes they're not there at all I think they're imagined or they're cultural but what lockdowns really made me think is the kind of weather system of the house the ways like it's made me quite self-conscious about the impact that those little moods as you're describing can have like why did I just speak to my child in the way I did if I trace that back quite forensically to its cause I my dream was interrupted or I've just been told I'm not getting paid for that thing or I've just had a fight on Twitter with X, you know, or I've just w w more in my case, I've just witnessed a fight between my friend and someone else on Twitter because I'm a weird voyeur. I don't tend to do it. I tend to feel the pain and then like not have any way to process it because I'm not an active participant. So and then I tr trace those things back to the to the way I speak to my children and realise like miraculously, like extraordinarily, my child has understood that and cut me some slack. Do you know what I mean? Like they're better at it already than I am because they're children. So they can roll with the punches. They wear their moods on their faces. Like they can be in a grump all day for no other reason than they're just in a grump. Like they're teaching me as an adult locked into all these behavioural patterns how to be how to be more easygoing with the strange ups and downs of modern life. Like, And that's something I've seen in lockdown in a way that I didn't before because I was on the train or I was busy or I was coming back or I was leaving. Being here has really made it Almost like, um, I feel like I've been in a nature documentary for a year. Like, seeing the behaviour of young men in the home, you know. <laughs> Here, they're like, like they get high on, 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 on blood sugars, and then they crash. And then screens make them go mad. Like, all these things, like, um, the, the environmental factors, and who they are as people shifting so radically as well. I do think it's amazing how we can look at the world once we strip away our cynicism and how jaded we are and all of the you know the external big things you know like kids kids understand like very basic emotions but they you know they won't necessarily understand well matt hancock has given yet another mate a million pound contract and, and that has created a, an incandescent rage in me that rage itself is quite quite pure and when you kind of start to look at the world through their eyes and you start to view injustice through their eyes and i'm having to explain to my kid about the bristol bus boycotts because she was learning about it at school given that you know her school is in a hugely like there's a huge black population at her school and you know they wanted to do something empowering about the civil rights movement that was very local to to our our school and my i, I realized that to explain to my kid what racism was and i started to explain it to her and she didn't understand she just thought it was an utterly preposterous ridiculous idea like how people can be how people can hate each other because of the color of their skin and i started to go well you know people might feel like this or they might have grown up in this environment and then i realized that i was being intellectually dishonest with her because i was trying to justify a thing that you know because of my cynicism and my jadedness and my being in the world i can i can fight those nuanced arguments around it but actually when you boil it down to what it is it is really really fucking stupid and so i had to force myself to look at look at it through her eyes and we were able to have a much richer conversation about it without me projecting my own shit onto it which i thought was a really interesting exercise i'm always interested when i do that because i want to arm them with actually race science is a really good example we've been talking a lot about the invention of the invention of race with my two eldest kids who were who interested in it. Partly because I, I, I want them to understand how recent, like how, how, how small human life is on the, in the context of this planet and how to some, some of the kind of aberrations we're witnessing at the moment, how they've erupted, you know, not quite in our lifetime, but very nearly in our lifetime. Like, and, he, and they're always quite interested in like, wow, so like when Grumpy was a kid, black people still weren't allowed to sit at the same button. I'm like, yeah, exactly. So it's basically now, it's still going on now. And what does it mean like now? And I always find I kind of rush to enlighten in ways that are related to my own journey in, uh, as, as a reader, as a thinker, as an active participant in, in society. Like, I things that I'm really only finding out now. And I'm like, hang on, slow down, slow down. They've got to learn all this other stuff first. They've got to, they've got to, they've got to have a wall in which to put this brick. I can't just, I can't just, I'm not just going to suddenly magically like create for them a total understanding of the, the injustice of the world over fish and over fish fingers and chips. Like of a Monday, they have to learn all they, they have to do. This, this has to be part of their huge learning. They're gathering in of themselves. And also the, I, I can't rush, do you know what I mean? I can't rush them. So especially because I'm trying to like, we live, they go to an incredibly white school and we've moved from London to a place where they're not they're just not going to see black and brown faces on the street in the way that they would when they where where, where they were born and I I can't over I can't 
I can people their cultural life at home with those faces, but I can't actually, I, I don't want them to go into their school as social, as social justice warriors before they've even learned to read. That's not my job. That's, that's their, them and their teachers' jobs and my jobs in the next 10, 15, like moving right on. It can't be done over a meal. And so having the patience to let them be children and to let them do that. You know, the other day they were, my kid was doing his spellings. My youngest kid was doing spellings, like spelling the word we or he, because he's just started, you know. And in the background, both, both my older children were doing impressions of Donald Trump and he stopped his spelling to join in with this, this satirical takedown, accurate and funny and really like quite inspiring as a parent to see your kids like skewering the type of buffoonery that Donald Trump exhibits like over breakfast. But I was also like, well, hang on a minute. Emil's just learning to spell the word we. Let him have that moment, you know. Let, let him spell the word before he learns how to perfectly skewer, you know, the bombastic clown, you know. <laughs> so I think that, that that's slightly what I mean about this this lockdown hyper like modelization of the family. And I can see what's happening in various different pockets of it. And I'm, I guess I'm slightly more self-conscious or self-aware about what's happening at what speed, if you see what I mean. But this is why you write that nice thing in Brown Baby about conversations with your daughter about being a woman in the world are conversations you're having with yourself related to your, your mourning and the absence of your mother in your life. And you have to simultaneously accept that those two can't be the same thing. You have to let your daughter be a, be a baby in the world. But, they sim but also accepting that they are the same thing. They are an organic whole of you trying to be honest and accepting you're fallible, etc. in the world. And like that juggling act is endless, lovely work, isn't it? Ongoing, hard work of the best kind. Yeah, yeah, it's really beautiful. And it's and, and I think it's rewarding all all the way around as well. I had a really I had a really interesting chat with Anushka Shankar, uh, a friend of mine, a musician uh, on, on another podcast episode where she talked about being being a single mum, raising two boys and what what that looks like for her and how how she uh, and how she thinks about raising boys but you know as as a, as a man thinking about you know because 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 there, there's a way of of raising them too much with our own shit or too much in in the way the world is and but obviously we want to we want them to forge a vision of the world for themselves but you also want them to be aware of the presence that they hold in different spaces or presence they might not hold in different spaces. And it's a really tricky balancing act, I think. It's a really tricky thing to get right. Because you you don't want you don't want your kid to kind of lean into like the worst bits of being being a being a dude yeah. or what have you. But at yeah. the same time you don't want them to kind of you don't want them to undo themselves and not live life to the fullest because they're too scared of being seen as X, Y, or Z. So I'm sure it's something that you think about. But do you have any like practical ways of managing that that you can share i'd have no practical advice for anyone no i'm making a right fucking pig's <laughs> ear of it as as we all are i mean i i i think what my wife is much better than i am at innately understanding that you don't want your children to be carbon copies of yourself if that were the case that would be an awful world and we are lucky enough to live in a time i, I mean i say this you know <laughs> reese mogg is like storming through my subconscious with his with his strangely dressed children and his nanny as i say this point but we are living in a time when it's widely acknowledged that you, we are, you know, for example, men, boys don't need to be strong anymore. They don't need to be tough. They don't even need to be called. They don't even need to call themselves boys. My kids understand this. Um, and, I, and it's an enlightened position. I believe it to be uh, one of the great things about where we are in the world, that they can have these conversations and know this about themselves. And my, they've got a gay uncle and a gay aunt, and they, they understand gender and race and politics in a way that, my, my, our parents generation simply didn't for which I'm grateful for which like that's a great lovely ongoing project elsewhere I feel like class in this country and possibly my own environmental and cultural and political angers are too much a part of their life my my unease with the way this country particularly operates is a large part of their conversational environment and I ought to work on that because as I was saying to you, they haven't yet had, they haven't just had the childhood yet. They might become great social justice champions. They might become beastly selfish shits. That's not, that, that's to their future. I, I was at their age, literally just in a cloud, privileged of course to be in such a cloud, but I was just wandering around, looking at 
things and riding my BMX and looking at comics and being a kid. And I worried a lot, but I worried about things like quicksand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, to quote the, the great internet cliche. Um, uh, I want to work on, on, on some of the more adult themes that are circulated in this house. I want to re-child them a bit. Like this Christmas is a case study for me. I want it to be quite magical for them. I want them to be off their screens as much as possible. I want them to rediscover. Like the other day I was screaming at them because they were tearing up and down the stairs and I was worried that they were going to slip and there was a lot of banging and noise and our neighbours had COVID and the other side's got a baby and the other side's had a grief thing and they're, 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 they're sort of in a quiet lockdown. I was just like, shut up, you don't understand. You're gonna... And I was like, listen to yourself. You, what you're hearing is literally the music of childhood. Three young people pissing themselves, laughing, playing like shoot em ups or, uh, you, know, you know, playing Marvel characters. And so that is what you dreamt of hearing. Like, this is what you want, not the silence of the tap-tap of the PS4 controls. Let them go off and be. So I need to do a lot more work to de-stress the house. They know too much about Brexit. They know too much about ecological collapse. Like, re rewild the kind of artificiality of childhood for them, which we all know is an artificial construct based on the economic privilege of me being even allowed to, to give them a childhood. But I want them to have it. Like, I don't ask for much in this world, but I do want to let them have that a bit. Given how, how bleak the world is, one of my biggest concerns is how I raise my kids to be joyful. Yeah. And to experience joy and to just have a sense of joy and wonder about the world. How do you guys do it? Reggae. And what? Perfect. Perfect answer. <laughs> oh, did you not want one word answer? Sorry. Reggae Saturday. <laughs> Hip-hop Saturday. <laughs> drum and bass Fridays. Uh, no, we do... Um, Fish and chip I mean, moments. really, yeah. Um... We're, we're like back to the basic senses. Uh, forests, I, I, I drag them out kicking and screaming to the woods and they get really upset about it. But it's why we moved here. And sure enough, you know, an hour later, they're running wild, screaming, buzzing on natural endorphins and soaking up the, the greenwood. Music is an enormous part of my life. There is always music in this house. Uh, and music is medicine. And we have these sort of big kitchen boogie sessions and they see me and my wife behave in a way that is loose and free and wild and fun and not taking ourselves too seriously and I think that's important um because they will over time see me take myself quite seriously like it's sort of my job to and it is actually my own my job to for example you know work for a literacy charity and go out there and be quite serious and angry with the government like they'll see plenty of that but they also need to see me do my thing <laughs> Uh, yeah, man, they need to see that stepping. Um, I think um, I, I cook a lot and I believe food is a joyful thing. Uh, I'm trying to teach them to cook. I want them to be in the kitchen with me, listening to music, making food and being grateful and interested in flavour and the joy of, of cooking. And, and, and again, the sort of extraordinary miracle of being alive in a time when we can get ingredients that mean we can eat our way around the world, eat globally, read globally. Uh, books you know they're, they're, I'm lucky I haven't had to force it they read they read a lot my kids idea of like a guilty pleasure is to binge on comics which is you know something has gone right in our life if that's the case uh, I'm also very very pro their relationship with their grandparents both sets but my my wife's parents they're really really close with them in a way that I just love they're lovely people my in-laws humble lovely uh, community people they love their neighbors they do a lot for their neighbors and hearing my kids chat away on FaceTime to their grumpy about the local non-league football game and what they've been up to and just light easy rolling fun honest I'm like that's a good relation you know I can hear that's good that's that's not going to last forever and that's really nourishing for them um, so yeah, you know I'm a pagan and I and I think about things in in animist terms. So I'm I, I generally think of the children as as plants, and I am trying to I, I know what we all know what the atmosphere is going to be like for these children in the next forty or fifty years. It's going to get very difficult on this planet. Um, so slightly luxuriating in the simple, easy things now, like laughter, music, food, you know, a walk by the river. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And. The two final also, things. just What's to just to add to that, sorry. You know how easy it is for a kid to feel shit about themselves. One of my children feels really shit about himself because he can't do a couple of things that other kids his age can do. Simple everyday things, and it's been an absolute masterclass for me as a human being to learn to help him through that. 
both as a disciplinarian, because one has to be as a parent sometimes, like, right, we're going out and we're going to try that, or I'm going to make you do that, make you practice that thing, but also as, 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 as an empathiser, working out what it might be like to be in the body of a person that age, looking sideways, looking laterally and seeing and, and telling yourself you've failed already, uh, what the mental health implications of that are, times like brilliant what while he's also worrying about like he worries about the food bank he worries about like he worries about cronyism he worries you know he worries about rosa parks like he, he's worrying so fast like in a way that only a child can worry in that kind of torrential flooded random like then i my, my basic responsibility not necessarily as a parent but as a human being is to just give him some tidal breaks give him some barriers in that to shore up his his day-to-day -day life and that feels like, as a novelist, like a really interesting project. That's what we do, right? We look at how human beings work and we try and think about the pressures they're under. Like we look at them really carefully to think about what's happening with them. So I feel blessed to have this project going on, the children, the difficult, the difficult project of being a child in the world now. Max Porter, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Cheers, pal. Good luck with the book next year. Thanks. Do you want oh. me to say the forthcoming and extraordinarily moving brown baby you february 2021 you definitely need your own radio show thank you so much to max for joining me today and to you for joining me today thank you for your time and your generosity and thank you to my publishers bluebird and to everyone at acast for supporting this podcast if you're a writer i have a free creative writing newsletter at nikesh.substack.com links in the show notes check it out and you know with the free newsletter and the free podcast both are free so if you can support me by buying brown baby uh the book or you know any of my other ones if you already have it that would be amazing or supporting max that would also be amazing it basically just helps us keep the walls from the door while we make stuff like this i record and edit and schedule all of this myself it's a lot of work okay um that's enough hard selling thank you so much join me next week uh remember to like and subscribe and all that kind of stuff and have a great week my friends next week ooh, the guest next week is a great great guest i'm very excited to share it with you i won't tell you who it is i'll just let it pop up in your feed and you'd be surprised okay goodbye brown baby i am brown baby yes i am i am silly brown Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.